Welcome to the Zeno Podcast, where we talk about stories and how they shape us and how we shape them. Today, I'm here with my co-host, Jackson, and Dr. Plicka. Dr. Plicka is our creative writing professor. We've both, Carly and I, have taken a bunch of classes from Plicka, so we thought he'd be great for this. And today, we're going to be talking about a little bit about creativity and research and how some people find that those are mutually exclusive, but they are not actually. How are you doing today? Wonderful, Jackson. Thank you for letting me be here. No, it's great to have you. So this idea of this podcast came from we our little chat. Uh, so creativity and research. A lot of people think that research is very scientific, can't be like mingled with creativity, but you have experience with creativity and research. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you want me to introduce myself? Should I do that? Absolutely. Okay. Sure. Yeah, tell us a little bit <laughs> about yourself. About yourself. <laughs> uh, you know, for the audience at home, for the huge audience at home, uh, just listeners. remind them. Yeah, I'm, I've been teaching here for five years and mostly the creative writing classes, which are where I've uh, met you to uh, aspiring podcasters yes. and we uh yeah and so um so you've heard a lot of my shtick and my spiel but um I did six years in Ohio at a PhD program there in creative writing and oh are you joking me right now creative writing and literature um and did my, and focused on fiction so that was my dissertation wrote a collection of short fiction which I was just looking over before I came here, just to just to remember when I used to kind of have time to be smart and do other things besides teach, um, and uh, talked and wrote a lot about fiction and the elasticity of language and uh, and kind of the way that it allows us to uh, enter into worlds in a way that other genres can't. So, anyways, um, so I've been teaching here for five years. I've got three kids, a beautiful wife, who teaches here. Really painting a picture. Painting a yeah. picture. <laughs> You're you are. five eleven, six foot one. Five eleven is probably six foot is what I used to say. But if I'm honest, five eleven. Yeah. He's wearing a, a short day. gray paisley shirt. Yep. That's very cool. Thank you. And some nice jeans. Oh. And I don't know what type of shoes are. Uh, are those Sanooks? These are Sanooks. Or Sanooks. Whatever. Know. Those are super comfortable. Oh man. So Free com- plug. <laughs> so comfortable. <laughs> We're not, not sponsored. sponsored. <laughs> Excellent. Well, okay, so creative writing and research. Okay, yeah. cut me yes. off at any time. Ask questions. Okay. Uh, but because I, I had to think about this a little bit. Um, okay, so the premise is, as Jackson mentioned, Jackson mentioned, there, there is creative endeavor and there is scholarly endeavor. And at a university, those two things are kind of have this awkward side-by-side relationship. Um, you have people at the university who are painting and making music and writing and stuff. And then, of course, people who are doing empirical research and you know original scholarship uh, in the humanities interpretation and explication um, and so those th- two things kind of get they get separated out um, and when people say research they usually mean something very serious and when people say creative they mean something I don't know what it fun and <laughs> fluffy and kind of flight flighty um, but this was an interesting topic when you proposed it so I've thought a little bit more about it um, and the kind of research that you engage in as a creative person and particularly as a writer of imaginative literature, poetry, creative nonfiction, po- uh, fiction, is um, what can be looked at in a, in a couple of ways. So uh, first of all, wh- where do stories come from is like a, a concept that 
if you go to any poetry reading, <laughs> fiction reader, essay essay writer, and you go to a reading, someone in the audience, well-meaning person, always asks, and it's kind of an inside joke among writers because it's like you know that someone's going to ask this question, and it's not a bad question, but the question is where do you get your ideas? Where do you get your ideas for your whatever you're writing? And um, so I've heard a lot of people answer that question, and most of the time they're kind of at a loss. Like, you know, there's this kind of half answer. Um, I just, <laughs> they just are. They, I mean, you know, just I'm, yeah, it, it's it's hard. And part of it is that writers are kind of, they, they want to hide the fact that what they do is maybe a little bit ordinary, um, make it seem more mysterious. Like, well, you know, they, there's the whole prophet artist kind of idea, which is, I think, still the way that we look at our favorite artists is that we put them up on a pedestal and remember and realize, uh, forget that they are in many ways just like us, uh, but they are, they're different because they come up with these beautiful works of art that we love so much. And so we just assume that they are these, these angelic beings who kind of have communication with the muse and that they, they're getting this constant stream of revelation of artistic revelation. But, um, but the fact is that where did, where do people, where does literature come from? It's, probably a lot more boring and ordinary than than we make it out to be so a lot of elbow grease uh, a lot of elbow grease that's research <laughs> research Empirical okay data. that's okay thank you for bringing it back Carly. bringing it back around i absolutely appreciate that's that why i'm here it's not just tapping into the ether <laughs> it's not i mean it is and it's it not. Is. yeah there's no. but there's two sides of it and what we're talking about is that other side because everyone knows that the inspiration strikes and and People write things down on napkins, and they have revelations on trains, like J.K. Rowling did when she Bless her she claimed yeah when she claimed <laughs> really when you hear her talk about it, the language she uses is almost religious when she talks about how Harry came to her more or less as a fully formed character in her head, and she just suddenly he was there, um, and that does happen. But then of course she had to write seven books, and those didn't just come to her on a train unbidden in that way. So. What did she do? She sat down and she worked. And at some point when you're working on something, you realize that your brain can only take you so far. And so that's where, quote unquote, how many times have I said, quote unquote, hopefully not too many. That's only the, the first, first one. Okay, good. So I probably overused that. <laughs> we'll count it up. You had a lot of worries it. today. I do, yeah. <laughs> Worried about the... I'm a yeah, very anxious person. That's <laughs> okay. You're doing great. If, if that comes out, hopefully. But um, yeah, the, the, what was the quote unquote? It was We're about J.K. Out. Rowling yeah. and like the, the ether. Dang it! Okay. From the ether. So okay. So 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 she has to write seven books, and she's and she's she's comes to a point. Okay, where the where yeah. the river runs dry, right? Yes. Where your brain, your ideas take you only so far, or you have something, and you realize that there are a lot of things in there that are, um, depending on what you're writing, checkable facts. I mean, things that people could if they wanted to go and check like is that true is that real even in fiction in mon in much literary fiction that is quote unquote realistic fiction there are checkable facts about places people things processes the natural world um so so i'll give you a couple examples from my own work and you know not, not that i am i'm very much still an aspiring writer but you know i've done some things um so i wrote a story about uh, paraphrasing stories is the worst. They always sound super boring, <laughs> and it probably is. But it's about a guy, like a washed-up basketball player mm -hmm. who's past his prime. Uh, he was a star in college. He's had some failed 
I mean, he's well off. He runs a business, but he's had some failed political race bids to like state Senate or whatever. Um, and so he's kind of this larger than life character, but he hasn't quite reached that pinnacle that he had maybe hoped that he would reach when he was a college basketball star. And he didn't make it to the NBA because he got injured. And so anyways, so this is a guy, he's kind of an approaching the end of his life. And, um, and the story is kind of about his acceptance of life. And part of it is that he, um, starts taking in foster dogs. That's very exciting. <laughs> I know. Um, and he takes and he takes in these foster dogs who are all like bad dogs. I mean, they're just, they, his wife hates it cause his dogs are always chewing things up and, but he's somehow decided that this is his mission in life now is to, to do these dogs. And he's got this friend who is a boxer or who, not a box who loves boxing. Mm-hmm. And part of the ritual with his friend is they watch boxing together. So I, of course I loved all this as it was, as I was writing it and thought, Oh, this is fun. And I love the dialogue and the interaction, but there came a time where I needed to go learn more about boxing. And it sounds so mm-hmm. straightforward and obvious. Like, well, duh. Like you just get on the internet and you, um, but people who read that story, hopefully they don't think about the fact that, oh, there was a guy doing hours and hours of research <laughs> into boxing in order to write this. Cause it kind of spoils the magic of it a little bit, but, mm-hmm. th- but I was there. I was part of it is that you get sucked down the rabbit hole when you get on the internet. Yeah. Um, I was actually reading a, a writer or an article in writer's digest or something about a guy saying, I, he said, I think the internet is for many obvious reasons, uh, probably a big part of why there are so many writers these days, so many people writing, is because that part of the process is so easy. I mean, the internet is so easy. Um, and you can, I mean, you can learn about anything you want and then you can say interesting things about it. Um, so I wrote about boxing, I had to do research. I wrote about dogs. I actually like did research on the Humane Society, SPCA, and how that works. And most 90% of the stuff doesn't end up in your story because you're not writing a report on boxing. You're writing the story where this plays a part, but it has to feel to the reader so seamless and real that they don't notice the research. So one of the pieces of advice that writers give, like Janet Burway, who uh, wrote the textbook that I use in 218, um, is you want to read a, not necessarily about the period that you're writing and she's talking specifically about historical fiction but not just mm-hmm. about it but mostly in it like reading letters and journals and books that were written during that time and um you know newspapers and stuff like that so that so that you you're absorbing like the feelings and the and the cadences of speech and language and and the culture of that time and not just the information about that time um, because what happens sometimes is when writers get overzealous in their research and get excited about all the things that they're learning and how they couldn't be incorporated into their work, into their stories or whatever, um, is you get this this almost kind of encyclopedic tone that comes in and it's the fingerprint. It's like Moby Dick. Like Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah, and see, here's the thing. This is, all discussions of writing can be contradicted so easily by just pointing to some great writer and being like, well, he did it. No, yeah. I'm just um, saying. Like, no, but it's his true. It feels very encyclopedic. Like, this is how, like, whaling works. And it just goes into, like, a lot of the, but then it's like, oh, but also God. Like, it ties in everything back to God. But usually, totally. like, this is how a rope works in a pulley. It's just super. Yeah. Herman Melville would not have made it through a creative writing class at a college because some professor <laughs> like, like me would have been like, oh. what? <laughs> yeah. I wrote this thing, but it's garbage. Yeah. And <laughs> someone would have been like, dude, this is like, <clears throat> get back to the story, man. Like, yeah. we don't want to read 60 pages on whaling, you know, just the facts and the ins and outs <laughs> about whaling. 
if you can make it interesting, I guess maybe, but, um, yeah, nobody can write books that long anymore either, un- unless you're... How long is that one? I've I don't never read it. 400, 500 pages. <sighs> Guys, true confessions. I've never read Moby Dick. Me neither. Uh, <laughs> so I was just assigned there. it last semester, so... I said it. I yeah. said it. <laughs> I've, I'm a professor air. of English. I've never read it. Yeah, That's but, fine. you know, I know about it. So, yeah, I mean, you do. You read stuff like that. Um, and other novels, especially pre-television, I've said this before in classes, pre-television novels served a different purpose. They were like a big source of entertainment and way of passing the time, whereas today people are just looking for time to read. So 800-page books just don't really fly off the shelves anymore unless you're David Foster Wallace or somebody. But um, So yeah, so you have the fingerprint of your research kind of so firmly stamped on a story that it it kind of spoils the magic almost a little bit or it takes the reader out because it seems suddenly like uh, the per- curtain gets pulled back a little bit and it's the author's like sticking his head out like see how much I know about boxing <laughs> isn't <laughs> that cool way. yeah exactly so I mean like what ended up what was the final product in your story of boxing like how much did you end up using was it no, like the lingo or just it was like much of it was the language yeah okay. the lingo uh you knowing what what kinds of punches because you know you think you know about something like, oh, yeah, boxing. I've seen some boxing matches and boxing. <laughs> but then you have to write about it, and you're like, um, is uh, it a jab? Is that what they call <laughs> it? You know, a right hook? And, like, am I saying the right thing? So, so yeah, the lingo was a lot of it. And because um, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't wanting to get the reader distracted by using real boxers' names or anything like that because that wasn't important. So, mm-hmm. so I didn't necessarily need to know the facts about names and dates and places. But, yeah, just the, the lingo and... Um, the rhythms of the fight and it, it was basically one scene i mean you know mm-hmm. any amount of research that i did probably amounted to no less than you know 50 to 100 words in the story or you know maybe more than that but so there's so that's an example um for uh, so one of my favorite novelists philip roth and one of my favorite books american pastoral which won the pulitzer prize i think in the 80s um maybe early 90s so he, and Philip Roth is a genius, but he, I'm sure, when, I, when you're reading that book, it's based partly on his personal experiences. I think he grew up in um, the New Jersey area and even maybe even in Newark. Now I should have done my research before I came and started to saying this. Someone go fact check that. Um, and I believe his family was even involved in manufacturing and maybe even glove making. Anyways, his, in the book, the main character's father, uh, family, is involved in making gloves and it's a novel and there are pages and pages not so much like even not like Moby Dick not to that extreme but there are pages and pages describing the process of manufacturing gloves and because he's a genius he makes it pretty interesting but clearly I don't think that was something that Philip Roth just had sitting on the top of his head like that he could recite and remember all of the details of that how that's made and it's not that anyone is necessarily going to fact check all of that and call him out but they could and writers do get called out for inconsistencies (laughs) even in novels um but it's as a professor of mine used to say in ohio it's the getting your moon in the right sky which was his way of saying you know if you're even if it's just a background part of your story you know that you're saying the moon was you know on this date was this was full and it was in this part of the sky and that that's a checkable fact that could be wrong and um getting that right maybe somehow magically just lends your story that much more 
strength and credibility. Essentially, it's it's a way of you, it's a te- technique of helping to suspend that reader's disbelief. Everything you can do to bring them into that imagined, vivid, dreamlike state that is a good piece of fiction. That's what John Gardner says. He says it's the vivid dream of fiction. And you just as a writer, you're doing anything you can to keep that dream from being interrupted or being woken up. So I don't know. I guess the, the takeaway is that for young writers, and I teach a lot of young writers in class, and it's and I was the same way as a young writer, right? You just don't realize how much work it actually is. You think that it's just about whether you have the talent or not, and that if you just sit long enough in front of a computer screen or if you just, you know, if you open yourself up to to the gods or whatever that 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 that's all you Sacrifice need is just yeah, writing yeah. gods right and that you and the, you and when you feel that rush of inspiration to get down the first draft or the first part of a piece you can be deceived into thinking that that's all you need oh yeah this is so good like it feels so natural it feels so easy it must be genius it must be per, it must be mm. and then uh, to, you know to be the disappointment of knowing that that inspiration was important but really to use a like a overworn sports analogy that kind of spoils this whole thing is who said that it's 10% inspiration, 90% perspiration or whatever. I think it was a, I have no idea. Vince Lombardi. I'm going to say Vince Lombardi because he's behind all football quotes. Probably Vince Lombardi. <laughs> I said was going to so. go with Babe Ruth. So you just, he probably said it first. Yeah. yeah. And Vince Lombardi stole it from him. So that's, that's the disappointing part of, of doing anything creatively is realizing that the fun part, the fun initial part, at least, um, is only a very small portion of it and then the 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 rest of it is hard work but it is also something that you to be a successful artist you have to grow to love and you do after a while after you after going through the process of research and revision enough times it's something that you can grow to love but so I guess we're what we're really talking about is research as a euphemism for it's hard to write <laughs> and be Google creative. a lot of stuff yeah <laughs> That's the takeaway. It's hard. It's hard. It's all hard. Came up with a metaphor in the meantime to that you can say oh, next please. time. You share this with your class. So sometimes a gold nugget will just fall out of the sky, which isn't true. But, it's, you know, just pretend. But and for then, sure, yeah, it happens. Then, but besides that, you got to just mine away at the ether <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. to get those other gold nuggets and put them together. Yeah, or as I so, I know because I grew up in California near Sutter's Fort where gold the gold rush started, Sometimes you're just walking across the river and you find a huge chunk of gold like John Sutter did. Yeah. Wow. It's a little research for you. Whoa. Um, but most of the time you have to pan through sand for like 12 years to get that, that much gold. That's why most, a lot of people don't mine. Don't do it. Well, yeah. That's why a lot of people don't write. end up writing and yeah. painting and doing those things. Yeah, it's like, that's everything, you know, everybody's like, oh, it comes so easy. Everybody's looking for a quick fix. It's like, oh, I just can't tap into the ether, but yeah, love the perspiration in Lombardi. <laughs> love it, yes. Well, yeah, you got to get sweaty and, and not be afraid of of uh, really stinking because that's how you feel a lot of times when you're in the throes of that kind of work and that kind of research is you don't know if it's going to pay off. You don't know, again, like how much you're going to use, whether it's going to turn out well. It's this enormous act of faith. It's terribly depressing a lot of times. That's why a lot of artists are kind of grumpy and depressed people not not all um and it's why it's i think that's part of the reason why actually why i think i haven't been maybe as successful a writer as i want to be at this point besides my kids i'll blame a lot on them but uh is because i think i'm just too happy like i just 
I, I'm just too pleasant. You can't so, scrape the, the bat out of your consciousness to throw against a could, canvas a that is a paper. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. But um, anyway, I could go on and on about this. Do you guys, what do you, would you want to redirect it in some way? Do you have another question about? I mean, no, I was curious about your PhD. So you wrote a collection of stories. Yeah. Did you research for that? Like, how did you prepare yourself for that? Yeah, well, so kind of like I mentioned, um, well, I did do a lot of research for the, if you were to do a creative dissertation mm-hmm. in a creative writing dissertation, which sounds silly to some people. Um, they do require you to do a kind of a critical introduction. So I wrote mm-hmm. like 40 pages of oh, what could oh. be considered like a, an academic paper that was about fiction and language, whatever. Was it like a self-analysis? Partly, which was weird because you're like... You have talk- <laughs> I mean this. <laughs> yes, you're talking about how your own work kind of fits into this oh. paradigm, this theoretical paradigm. I wasn't like interpreting it so much like this is what the story means, but talking about how the these concepts more abstract concepts maybe influence the way that I work or whatever and it's yeah I mean it's it's a little bit of an exercise it's when you're actually writing or actually doing any creative thing you're not usually thinking in those abstract theoretical ways you just you just think you're just trying to live in the moment and kind of feel it but um so I got a professor who said you you know you have the your two hats you have your writer hat and you have your scholar theory hat and then when you're writing you got to take off the theory hat and put the other one on hopefully some of that stuff kind of stays in your brain and bounces around and subconsciously influences what you do and who you are but you can't overthink it right you'll just be paralyzed if you're thinking about that kind of stuff if you're uh you know as a shout out to my brilliant colleague ned williams if you're trying to write a story and you've got ned williams in your head (laughs) <laughs> you know, like talking about postmodernism, you just like, you might not even be able to, you won't get very far, right? Because it's like, it deconstructs itself. I, I don't know. It's, they're two separate activities and related, but it's hard to coexist. So basically, when you use research, it's as like a stepping stone to get to the next pocket of ether or what? I keep saying okay. ether. Well I mean, said. Like- <laughs> oh, I love that. No, that's great. I like that stepping stone. To the yeah, ether. Yeah, it's like you're, yeah. Just trying to get there. Right. Just step by step. You need something <laughs> concrete, yeah, mm-hmm. to move to move yourself forward. Absolutely. Otherwise, it just sounds like Finnegan's Wake. Sure, yeah. And, just, I, and, I, and as somebody who's <laughs> never read Finnegan's Wake, I can't pass judgment on it, but it seems... I haven't read it completely either. I started it and I was like, this is, is it, not hardly English. Okay, so basically, this is my understanding of it. Yeah, but you probably know as much as I do. <laughs> if someone listens to this and they're very like big on James Joyce, yeah. I don't know. Joyce scholars, me and plug help your me ears. Understand. Yeah. It's basically this really loose story, but the way that it's told is like completely stream of consciousness. So it starts like in the middle of a sentence, and then there's lots of parts that just aren't English. It's just a bunch of letters. Like someone just smashed a keyboard. It's very confusing. I mean, it's partially intelligible, but it's okay. it's a grand experiment. And okay. James Joyce wrote so many amazing things before that that people have to respect it and kind of be like, okay, like you were doing something here <laughs> and we just don't understand like Gertrude Stein. But um, And it is very actually Gertrude Steinian in the way that he makes up it. Like there's a lot of words that are just nonsense. And yeah, and uh, it's kind yeah. of fun to read out loud. Yeah, actually. the audiobook is hilarious though, because <laughs> they had to like learn how to pronounce everything. And is it is it an Irish accent? Is a person who read it and have an Irish accent? Oh, I don't know. 
because that's Finnegan. That would be even better. Yeah. Well, he James Joyce was super Irish. Hmm. Yeah. Um, the more you anyway. know. Yeah. Okay. So that was a tangent. Yeah, that was a tangent. <laughs> no, no. I again. Has it been three hours yet? What are we? No, <laughs> only 15 minutes. So are you serious? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Cruising. Yeah. Well, so, okay, here's something to you think about, and um, let me know what you think. So the, so another way of thinking about this idea of research uh, in, in art and in creativity and writing is the idea that the whole concept of originality has been, again, overblown and maybe um, fetishized in, in, in creative arts is the idea that it's about the or it's about the original genius it's about the person with the vision um and it's and it's and it's something that can't be taught or worked at um probably a more accurate way of thinking about most artistic mediums is collage so you know you had to do collage when you were in elementary school probably yeah sure I don't remember, but I'm sure I did. Well, like, it. you know, like you had to cut up a magazine. Yeah. Yeah. With yeah. pictures. <laughs> like, and you had to. I mean, I, every had, scrapbooking, uh, basically, but just yeah. messier. Yeah. At some point in elementary school, everybody <laughs> has an assignment and they're like, Mom, do we have any extra magazines? And the mom's like, ah, oh, crap. And they're like calling around. It's <laughs> like, so get some old National Geographics and some Sports Illustrated and. Good housekeeping. Yeah. Good housekeeping. And then they, yes. And then you make a collage around some idea or theme. Um, I mean,. So the originality in collage comes from the way that you put it together. It's not that you are the first one to ever imagine a certain thing or image. Okay, this is getting complicated. But you know, like you did. <laughs> yeah, yeah you like did. you're not the first person to use a mountain or whatever yeah, in exactly. a collage. You're not the first person to do a collage. Sure, right, yeah. Um, but you're the first person to put everything together in that very specific kind of way. And that's so much what creativity is about it's about putting things together and that in and of itself is a worthy and very creative and difficult thing to put it together in a way that makes sense and is beautiful the form um, says something meaningful but but yeah it's not uh, it's much less about pure inspiration and much more about um, working with things that are just already around you and floating around when Lance Larson came last semester I think you were there, Carly. Cool. Yeah, yeah, I was there. I don't know if you made it, Jackson. Were you I there? did not. Yeah, because you hate poetry, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm a hater. Just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. But he said something like that. He said, as yeah. I get older and more mature as an artist, I'm less inclined to think about what I'm bringing and more inclined to kind of be more receptive to what's out there and like what, yeah. what comes to me from the outside. And then I'm the, the medium, the channel. The flypaper. The flypaper. Did he say that? Mm -hmm. Oh, great. I think. Or I'm I sure just he made did. that up. If, if, even I better. It was what, like, like flypaper that catches flies? Right. Yeah. Oh. So the ideas and the images are flies, and the artist is the flypaper. Gotcha. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I wrote a story yeah. about flies. Can I tell you about it real quick? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> is it Lord of the Flies, too? No. <laughs> no, it's not. It was. So this is something. The other part of research, of course, is research in quotes that we're making this word mean so many things now personal experience for for artists for writers especially personal experience is most of the time even in even in in the most craziest piece of fiction i think that if you were to do some kind of real freudian analysis you could probably show just how autobiographical it is like in in the characters and the scenes and you can probably find something in that writer's life that is uncannily similar to what they've put there and they've disguised it in a certain way and cloaked it in language but 
it's all autobiography. I've heard somebody say that anyways. So, but that story was one of the most fun ones, funnest stories I've ever written. And I'm so disappointed that it just hasn't materialized yet until I think that my hope is someday to go back to it and see exactly what it needs to get published. But it was based on an experience my wife and I had when we went, when we went to Idaho to work on, I was actually working on my master's thesis at the time. And we had a, a family member with a cabin up on a river and we were like, yeah, we'll go up there and I'll work and it'll write and it'll be great and beautiful. <laughs> and we got up there and there was like a plague of flies and <laughs> in, in, I'm not even kidding. Like, like there this was, is biblical. there was a biblical <laughs> plague. There were so many flies. They were just disgusting and they were all covering the windows. And then like nice. they would, like I would slap them and I'd hit like three or four or five oh. flies at the same time. And they'd fall down into the windowsill and I was vacuuming them out of the track of the window. Oh. And they were like fly guts smeared all over the windows. And then, and I went and, and I um, hung fly paper all over the house. Like I would just like tack it to the ceiling. And so if you had walked into the cabin, you would have seen like 20 curly strands of fly paper just it looked like a nightmare on elm street kind of thing it was just in all over the just yeah and flies everywhere and stuff and then anyway so that then i thought this would be fun to write about and it started out as just kind of a recreation of that event but then in uh, fictional fashion it turned into this anyways the guy ends up having these you know he's in a rage and he's he's got a leaf blower out and like peanut butter is part of it anyways (laughs) And then, uh, and he ends up going, he ends up like contacting this scientist in, um, at the university down in town and he goes and he, he, um, he finds a type of duck that's like well known for eating flies. And I think I'm remembering this all correctly. Anyways, the story culminates in his mad, like feverish attempt to like kidnap all these ducks from a farm and put them in his trunk and then drive them to the cabin and like let them out in the cab anyways so that was yeah based on personal experiences but then you know becomes much more dramatic as fiction is you know it's a it's a dramatization and an over dramatization i think of our ordinary lives but that's why we that's why we like it so much because it takes all the exciting parts of life and smushes them together Somebody somewhere has, oh, and spiders. He also gets, collects spiders and tries to put those around the house to take <laughs> care of the flies. He thinks somehow this natural plague needs a natural cure. Anyways, that wasn't as exciting as I thought. So No, it was, that was awesome. Exciting. Uh, yeah, very exciting. So collage. <laughs> so research is, you know, you think of yourself as an artist. I think it frees you up, actually, to be a better writer when you think of yourself not just as this original genius, but as a collector as a collage maker and a collector of interesting things and images and words and ideas and putting them together and research plays a big role in that you have to just be the other part of research extending the word even farther is um you know artist has to be in touch not just with their discipline or their specialty but with life and a lot of writers wear this as a badge of pride actually you'll, you when you read bios oftentimes you you know you'll see the the writer bio that says before he's you know started publishing stories in harper's john smith was a uh, bricklayer you know trash compactor uh, you know button sewer uh you know karate tutor like you know list all the odd jobs that they've had mm-hmm. and that somehow is almost like a credential in and of itself maybe even a more valuable credential than an academic one to say basically to signal to people like I have lived life <laughs> I have lived 
a life <laughs> and now i'm turning this it is into a real art person yes exactly this is a real face. person but you know the parody aside that is a true thing like you there's nothing that um every once in a while i'll encounter and this this is going to feel a little mean-spirited so i'm not talking about anyone in particular certainly not you two but sometimes <laughs> i encounter a student who has these strong desires to write or to be an artist and they're just not at all a curious person they and it's fine like we all can't be this way but you know in in some ways they're just they're very content with just their little narrow slice of what they know and do and um and they and in that sense are maybe a little bit dull and it's it's just not you ha you like curiosity is the thing i think that drives creativity and so you know, if if they, if I meet someone who wants to be a writer and they're just not ravenously devouring every experience and especially every book that they and piece of writing, not just books. I mean, I read a lot of magazines and newspapers, and like I'll go to the doctor's office and I'll pick up like a you know stupid um, like a like a catalog for tourists. Like in Hawaii, you know, they have those like Hawaii things to do in Hawaii. Like it's the stupidest thing, but I have to be reading something if I'm just sitting there. Uh, you know, unless my children need me to love them and pay attention to them. Like I, <laughs> I just have to be reading something. And that's not to say this is why I do what I do, because um, I still have a long ways to go. But, but yeah, that curiosity of just knowing what's out there. What do, and not just like knowledge, like I need information, but what do other people in this world think about and feel? And how, how do other people experience the world? Because it is, in the end, a huge exercise in empathy and in imagination and imagining what it's like to be somebody else um, and imagining what other people might find interesting about being you. Um, most of the time we just show our boring selves to the world because we're afraid and also we're polite. And when you're a, when you're a socially polite person, you, you don't just, you don't just put your weirdness out there all the time. But in, in writing, what people really want is the weirdness. They want to know what's inside this person who talks like everybody else, dresses like everybody else, and you know mostly acts and behaves like everybody else, because most of us are very conformist in that way. But what's underneath that person and that rawness is really what appeals to us about, about writing, is we get to kind of sit in somebody else's brain and feel what they feel in a very intimate way, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, or poetry or something else. But... So I don't know. I've thought about um, using this thing in class that's called, um, it, do you know the Great Courses? Have you ever heard of that? No. It's like this um, independent educational, essentially it's they'll pay professors from all around, people who are top in their field, and they'll say, create a course on this topic and a series of lectures, and we'll record them, you know, audio and DVD, and then we'll write them up. And they probably, I don't know how much they get paid for that, but then those courses are packaged and sold, mm -hmm. not as part of a university curriculum, but just anyone can buy them. So like mm -hmm. a lot of retired people buy them, like grand, my grandparents, my grandpa buys a lot of them because he has time and he's a smart guy and he's wants to be learning. And so he buys stuff like courses on physics and stuff uh, about biology and he's interested, anything you're interested in, you can find. There's a couple companies that do it, I think. So they're great courses. I, I get emails from them. And they have a course called um, Daily Life in Ancient Times or something along those lines. And the, all the lectures are like, what was it like to be a peasant in Rome? What was it like to be a slave in Egypt? What was it like to, and they really try to recreate in some kind of historical way. And obviously there is some imagination involved, recreate what it was like to be 
not just the king or the ruler, who, who the per- people we usually hear about in history, but to be the ordinary person. What was their daily life like? What did they wear? What did they eat? Where did they go? How did they spend their time during the day? Um, the trash collectors. The trash collectors. Karate tutors. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, and that seems to me like, uh, I don't know, I thought about making that a part of the curriculum in, in my creative writing course and asking people to to write from the perspective of one of those characters because um, I think that's kind of what it's about. It seems Another like kind of research. a lot of this is coming back to just one of the most over said statements ever but it's like write about what you know you know like oh. write what you know and it seems like if you don't know like if you hit a gap just like go find out like yeah but it always comes back to like rawness like you were saying like knowing about either about yourself or boxing yeah whatever you know there's i'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the things i wrote on my my little four by six card that is <laughs> guiding our discussion today um that, that that exactly that whole phrase right what you know is seems to be at odds with the notion of um of needing to be a curious and re- and person and and do research quote unquote um yeah cuz what do we know i mean i've lived a little more life than you guys but you know not much not twice so yeah <laughs> double so, you know wife and kids probably like triples it sure. i feel I like mean, you, you're in charge you, of other things you experience some things like the first four years of our life like i don't remember anything so <laughs> really i'm 16 sure yeah and i'm uh 21 um yeah no and but you know you know things that i don't know and i know things that you don't know but um but write what you know in some ways is terrible advice right mm-hmm. because then you're just you're in this little box of your own experiences and what's the use of imaginative literature if that's what you're going to confine yourself to on the other hand it's it's good advice because it's an encouragement for people who feel like well i have to be this other person in order to write i have to be an amazing educated world traveling kind of person and that's i think why that advice exists because it's saying no you don't you have experiences and an inner life that's worth exploring but in order to make that inner life interesting, you're going to have to work hard and maybe do some, some poking around and educate yourself and research. And But yeah, write what you know. Maybe that's another way of just summing up this whole idea is... Well, it's part of it. How far does that advice take you? Right? Well, see, let's, let's review the nuggets of wisdom. So we got <laughs> love the perspiration. Love it. Yeah. Feel it. Write what you know. And then also, like, it's... I mean, you're saying, like, write what you know. And you're not saying to, like, shy away from the inspiration or the ether i keep saying that it's just like the best way i love I the ether to... yeah <laughs> it's all some, i also think of like the way that ether is also used as a isn't it also the chemical that you use to like make people pass out i think or, so yes <laughs> oh no is that something chloroform sorry but there is like a chemical ether there is a chemical ether yeah but i'm talking about like the the aether like it's like the, yes the god force absolutely the, the spirit yes. so to speak yeah whatever yeah. i don't know Something that Newton probably disproved, like, <laughs> or thought he disproved. Yeah, it's still out there. We Tap should into research it. that. Write a story about it. But anyway, <laughs> the ether. <laughs> it's not about shying away from the ether. It's about using that until the river runs dry, and then working through it. Right. Elbow grease. Elbow yes. grease. Perspiration. Perspiration. <laughs> Love it. Keywords. <laughs> Buzzwords. Buzzwords. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I'm still, you know, figuring all this stuff out, too. Um, and a lot of it is, you know, about bravery and time and resources and 
how far you're willing to go to to get the story that you're that you're after whether you're a journalist or a novelist i mean it's all about chasing the story so um yeah the internet i was reading again burroway talking about this the the four main places for writers to go to do this kind of stuff is the internet the library we mentioned this already the um to move somewhere to actually go and expand a lot of writers have done this and um it's amazing of course it takes money and it takes time and it takes a, a mobility and you know some guys with three kids don't have as much mobility but um and then uh, interviews and the interviews and going places are kind of similar but so i tried to do this a little bit um a few years ago i when i was here i didn't have as many responsibilities and then some life was a little bit simpler when i first got here and i got money to go to saint augustine because my sister lives in right next to saint augustine florida oh. the oldest continually settled city in the United States on wow. the mainland United States because Roanoke was first uh, or maybe it wasn't anyways Spaniards came to St. Augustine in like the early 1500s and then they left and came back and built a fort there later anyways it's a fascinating city it's like this interesting blend of amazing historical place and um, like Disneyland for senior citizens like there's all because it's in <laughs> Florida and people go vacation there and there's a lot of kind of cheesy tourist stuff around like the Ripley's the original Ripley's believe it or not museum is there um, I wonder what the first wow. issue of that was like yeah <laughs> <laughs> can you believe how big this cow is <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah absolutely oh uh, it's crazy Pools place gold was like the first thing <laughs> like it is not <laughs> oh so it's a it's a cool place and I and I thought I had this vision like I'm going to go and and be in St. Augustine. I've spent time there with my sister, but I was going to go be there for 2 weeks and just have nothing to do but be there. And I had these romantic visions of what it was going to be like and it was wonderful and I was I was by myself, which doesn't happen very often uh, after you have a family and I was taking pictures. I have a ton of pictures still I filled up a whole notebook. I bought a ton of books. I mean it was just awesome. It was so fun. Um, but I haven't had the time and the, and the will and the work, you know, he had it in me to go and sort through all that stuff. And mm -hmm. so I think the other thing, what I'm getting at is that research can in some ways overwhelm you mm -hmm. and overwhelm a project. If you, uh, part of it is just, I'm not a historical fiction writer and, and I'm trying to figure that out. And I'm not, I don't want to write historical fiction as much as fiction informed by this place, this historical place, but you know, I have so many books, notes, and pictures now that I'm like, I'm overwhelmed by the whole thing. And someday, I think, I still feel like maybe this will be my magnum opus in 30 years. That's what I can look back and be most proud of is my book on St. Augustine. But um, yeah, so moving somewhere and soaking it in and, and being there certainly is, is, there's no substitute for actually being there. The internet can only take you so far. And that's kind of the exciting part about, about, uh, about writing is that it's it's you know the experience is as much a part of the process as the intellectual exercise so anyways we were about to end and then i <laughs> hey, pushed it too far no, i'm having such a good fine. time no it's good we can do part we two like if 20 you want. minutes so <laughs> yeah cool well it's been a pleasure yeah thanks for coming it's been awesome you guys gonna take some yeah. more classes from me I don't know. If I you think have it, any I think more. Out yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you both ran through the whole gamut, didn't yeah. you? That's yeah. I did all the creative writing, all the yep. Kulamanu. Kulamanu. Yeah. 
submit this semester. Hey, By the way, plug for Kulamanu. Oh. It is BYU Hawaii's magazine of art and literature. Absolutely. You can submit yeah. and Joe Plicka. Deadline March Dr. 10th. Plicka. Yeah. March 10th. Just, March 10th. you know, get on Facebook and type in Kulamanu Journal. You'll see, you'll awesome. find it. That's K U L A space M A N U. Thank yeah. you. Kulamanu. Cool. Yeah. It's great. Last sis, last year's issue, I think, was the best. It was ever. a highlight. Yeah, yeah. no, that it was because uh, Carly and I were on the editing staff. Yeah, we so. were. exactly. No, it I. Was fun. I'm not just blowing smoke <laughs> here. I think you guys, like when I when I look at all the issues, and I've had a couple people actually say to me, even last year's was the best i don't know wow like if they've read all of the previous ones <laughs> but for sure uh, the best, best one that they remember that they remember yeah so well, that's good oh that's gosh. it was a good one made put us our proud. heart and soul into it we did yeah you did you had to do really a little fun. research too yeah that's true we researched literary magazines yeah so that was fun yeah all righty well, well this has been the xeno podcast you can follow us on instagram and facebook at xeno podcast that's x-e-n-o podcast and you can also email us if you have any questions about creativity and research or anything that we talked about or suggestions for future episodes at podcastzeno at gmail.com yes and this podcast was brought to you by the byu hawaii's reading and writing center thanks for learning by listening